The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, if the birth of Jesus Christ, together with his death and resurrection, is the most important event in history, and in the very, it is the very heart of the Bible, then we should expect to see it throughout all of Scripture. We should see it in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. We should see it in Genesis and Revelation, and we do. The last telling of the Christmas story is as late as Revelation chapter 12. The first is as early as the third chapter of Genesis. And if you look at Genesis 3, verse 15, Jesus, speaking to Satan, says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, the setting is the Garden of Eden, yet Christmas in Eden is still surprising, not because of the birth of Christ is announced here, but because of the context. The context is the occasion of God's judgment upon Adam and Eve for their sin. The devil had come to Eve in the garden and tempted her to rebel against God. First, by doubting his benevolence. The devil questioned, does God really have your best interest when he prevents you from eating of one tree in the midst of the garden? He put doubt in her mind. And second, by challenging God's word. You will not surely die, Genesis 3, 4. And then third, by dangling before Eve the promise that she and her husband husband could be just like God. They would know good and evil. Now, this is the context that we're given in Scripture. Very simple, very brief. But I can imagine the conversation being even more extensive. I can imagine Eve saying, well, what's evil? What, what is death? Now, she knew about death because it had been promised to her if they denied God, and we'll see that in Genesis chapter 2. But Eve listened to Satan, began to doubt God, and then rebelled against her creator by taking the fruit and then giving it to her husband, and he took it also. So on this occasion, God has come to the garden to demand an accounting of what's going on, and to pass judgment on our first parents. So fear must have gripped their hearts because they would have remembered what God had said in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam and Eve might not have known what death was in those early days. But the words of God were clearly a formidable threat fixed against a solemn prohibition. And they had done what God had told them not to do. And now God had come to mete out judgment. By any rational measure, they must have expected to die, whatever that was. I think they would have begun to grasp the reality particularly when God came and they ran and hid. Who would have thought to hide from God, who you enjoyed being with and the fellowship that you had with him? But amazingly, 
instead of uh, passing a total judgment, God passed a partial judgment. The woman would have pain in childbirth and would struggle with her husband for supremacy. The man would earn his living by difficulty in the sweat of his brow and then eventually return to the dust from which he came. But then, and this is the wonderful and unexpected part, God promised a deliverer. He promised Jesus who would come from the woman as her offspring. The words are part of God's judgment upon Satan since they are a promise of defeat to him who had been the instrument in Adam's fall. So in Genesis 3.15, look at it again. He says, I will put enmity. Now, remember those four words because they'll be significant in a few minutes. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is totally amazing. This is the first appearance of grace, the undeserved favor of God in the Bible, and grace is always surprising. Christmas is the most surprising grace of all. So I want us to look for a moment at wonderful warfare. Those words don't generally go together. At first glance, this verse does not seem particularly wonderful. This is because it is speaking about conflict, conflict between Satan and the woman, between his offspring and her offspring, between himself and her great descendant, who is Jesus. And conflict does not strike us as wonderful. The word used in the text is the word enmity. And the pure definition of that word is the state of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. How can enmity be gracious? How can warfare be wonderful? Well, we must remember first that Satan had rebelled against God earlier. He was the most exalted angel of all the angels. Yet he put it in his mind that he could be just as great or greater than God. And so he sought with his whole soul, mind, and spirit to replace God as the Lord of the universe. He was unsuccessful, of course, as we know. But he was cast out of heaven, and so he comes down to earth, and what he had uh, planned to do, he comes to, to Eve, and he says... First of all, that he wanted to draw Adam and Eve away from God by causing them to break the laws so they could be punished just as he was punished. And second, he wanted Adam and Eve's allegiance. He wanted Adam and Eve to follow him. This was his great plan. Now, though the text does not say it explicitly, Satan surely wanted to win their allegiance of the first parents to himself. He succeeded in the first objective by getting them to sin. He got Adam and Eve to sin, but he was unsuccessful in his second objective, which was what this text is really about. It's significant that these verses were spoken to Satan. For the new element is not Satan's hatred of Eve. He hated our first parents right from the moment of their creation. No, the thing that's important now is Eve and Adam and all their offspring's hatred of Satan. Not perfectly because they are sinners now, 
but enough for them to not be drawn into Satan's camp and follow him wholeheartedly. Now think of this for a moment. Suppose God had not created enmity between the man, the offspring of Adam, and, the, and, and Satan himself. What if God not, had, had not placed this enmity? Well, in that case, Adam and Eve could have become like Satan, not like God. And from time forward, they could have seen everything from Satan's point of view. They could have looked at Satan as the deliverer and God as the enemy. They could have been swept up in his whole way of thinking. Enmity is the first great grace. So although the human race is terribly corrupt, and although its ideas of truth are false, right and wrong are corrupted, human beings nevertheless have a sense of right and wrong. And even if they don't understand it completely, they have this sense that they should not do evil. That is what Genesis 3.15 speaks about. It is the first great blessing of God to fallen humanity. And when we sin, we find that sin only leads to corruption and pain. So this enmity that's between us and Satan is really a wonderful thing. It is a wall that prevents us from falling wholeheartedly into sin. It creates pain. Now, if you'll think for a moment about putting your hand on a hot stove, you get burned. Nobody likes to get burned. It hurts. It's painful. But just think if pain didn't happen when you put your hand on a stove. You could ruin your hand before you knew it. Pain is a very good thing. It protects us from ultimate harm. And enmity between God, between God's people and Satan is a wall of protection that causes us to focus on Christ. God has created enmity between ourselves and Satan, which limits his hold on us and makes it possible for us to hear God's voice and understand truth. So there are two offsprings that bring this to light here that I want you to see. There's a second antagonism here in these verses, and this is between the descendants of Satan and the descendants of the woman. Some hold that this conflict is between God's followers and demons, but that's not the case because demons are separate created beings. They're not uh, born from Satan as we are born from our parents. The conflict here is actually between the godly descendants of the woman who follow Eve and Adam in believing God and thus being influenced by him and the ungodly descendants of the woman who do not submit to God and thus continue to be influenced by Satan. These are the two humanities spoken about in Genesis 4 and 5. Is this good? Well, it certainly is. The warfare between these who are attempting to follow God and those who are following Satan cause godly people to draw close to God and depend on him, which is a blessing. And in a sense, what we are finding in this Genesis passage is that the world is really a friend of grace because it's very hatred pushes us to God. Our hatred of Satan and the world's hatred of us are two great Christmas gifts. So the thing it brings us to in this one verse now is a promise of a deliverer. The chief reason for this verse is the promise of a deliverer from God who would be born of a woman. 
It's a prediction of the birth and even the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And since this first promise of the coming of Christ in the Bible, Genesis 3.15 has been called the first announcement of the Christian gospel. But notice, in this too is a struggle. Because more than that, is, it, is, it is deadly warfare. For in this case, the battle is not described as antagonism only, but as a fight to the finish, which the deliverer is to be wounded by Satan. But on the other hand, Jesus is to destroy the devil by crushing his head. At the first birth of Jesus to Mary seemed to play into the devil's hands. I mean, think about this. As long as the Trinity remained in heaven, they were protected. But now it seems like foolishly, Jesus had come into Satan's realm. Could this be true? He's coming into where Satan can get at him, so he thinks? So Satan begins to work on Joseph's mind right away, accusing Mary of fornication. And it took an angel to convince him otherwise. Later, Satan worked on the mind of Herod, telling him that some pretender king was coming and getting him to kill all the firstborn under, under two, two years old. And of course, we know that Mary and Joseph and Jesus escaped to Egypt because of a vision in a dream. On, on and on throughout Jesus' life, he attempted it. From temptation in the wilderness to a storm on the sea, for trying uh, to get citizens to throw him off a cliff, trying to get another time to pick up stones and stone him to death. And when none of this worked, he whipped up all the religious leaders' hatred against him. But Jesus was master of every situation. I do not know what was going through Satan's mind at that very moment when Jesus was heading to the cross. He must have been overflowing with glee. At last, he had succeeded. God had been so foolish to come into his realm, and now he was succeeding in an age-old goal to murder God. But in the moment of apparent victory, he must have forgotten the prophecy spoken in the Garden of Eden. The prophecy said that he would indeed bruise his head, but it was only a bruising, not a defeat. And on the third day, Jesus arose from the grave. And defeated him once and for all. And as for Satan, he was destroyed even though he didn't know it at the time. Dr. John R. Gerstner wrote of this triumph. He said, quote, Satan was majestically triumphant in this battle. He had nailed Jesus to the cross. The prime objective of all his striving through all the ages was finally achieved. But he had failed. For the prophecy which had said that he would indeed bruise the seed of the woman had also said that his head would be crushed by Christ's heel. This, while Satan was celebrating his triumph in the battle over the Son of God, the full weight of the atonement accomplished by the crucifixion, which the devil had effected, came down on him. And he realized that all this time, so far as being successful as he thought in battle against the Almighty, he had actually been carrying out the purpose of the will of the all-wise God, end of quote. What Satan had failed to see is that his only true power, 
unlike his pretensions to power, comes from God. Particularly from God's character. He knows that God is holy and that he must punish sin. But what Satan did not know, and no one could fully have known until Jesus died for us, is how God could both punish sin and mercifully save sinners. You see, the devil failed to understand how much God loved Adam and Eve. How Jesus had been sent by God to bear sin's punishment and that his own power would be broken in the process. I mean, think of how this must have come to Satan to understand this. Adam and Eve sinned. They had been given a spectacular garden of blessing. They could eat of anything in that garden. The animals were their friends. Life was good. But they failed in allowing the temptations to pique them so much that they violated God and took of it. Now, people have said in arguments, why didn't God not put that tree in the garden? Why didn't he just let him eat of everything and none of this would have happened? Well, let me ask you this. Think of somebody who you really love and who loves you. And just imagine that the only reason they love you is because they've been programmed and have no choice. Would that really be love? You see, God in his infinite mercy gave them the opportunity to choose. You can love me with your life or you can love yourself more. And unfortunately, Adam and Eve chose to love themselves. But here's where amazing grace is. Because Almighty God said, I love you even more than your sin. And my love overwhelms your sin. And can I say something to you? God's love overwhelms your sin. Because he has made a way for each one of us, just like he did for Adam and Eve, to find grace in the eyes of God. You don't have to go any farther than Genesis 3.15 to see grace. The promise of the coming Messiah. Adam and Eve made sacrifices looking forward to Christmas. They would take the blood of bulls and goats and they would shed it on the altar as an image of looking forward to that day when the deliverer would come. And the deliverer came 2,000 years ago. You and I don't no longer make sacrifices with blood and goats, but we're still to make a sacrifice. Only this time, it's placing ourselves on the altar as we surrender to Jesus Christ. He purchased us with the blood of his self. He purchased us out of the slave market of sin. We are no longer ours. We've been bought with a price, the scripture says. So glorify God with your body. And so, as, as Romans 12, 1 says, holy, acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. Or as the King James says, which is your reasonable service. This is the life God has marked out for us. And way back in Genesis three fifteen, the promise was there for total deliverance. Even though Adam and Eve sinned, 
God loved them even more. And when you stop and think, and this is what blows my mind all the time, that he was willing to make a way with his own son for you. I mean, can you wrap your head around that? That God, the creator, Colossians says about Jesus, he created all things and by him all things consist. He's the omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful God of the universe. And yet he came and died for you. The devil failed to understand how much God loved Adam and Eve. And every day, the devil can't imagine how he loves you and me. But I want you to notice that this is all faith alone. Satan did not understand what was to happen by the atonement. And no one did understand fully until the death of Jesus Christ. Yet, the godly who lived before the coming of Christ did understand it, at least to some degree. And they believed on the one who was promised. Adam believed Jesus, and so did Eve, though they didn't know his name. But the reason I say Adam and Eve believed is found in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20. It says, and the man called Eve, called his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. He names his wife Eve. Now, people sometimes suppose that God named Eve Eve. But that's not the case. He named Eve man, just like he named Adam man. Genesis 5, verse 2. Male and female created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. So literally, God named them Mr. and Mrs. Man. Adam, that's what he called them. But the woman is not named Eve before this point. She was called Eve by Adam. And why? Well, the answer is the meaning of the name Eve. Eve means life giver. And the reason Adam called the woman Eve is because of the promise we're looking at this morning. He knew that she would bear through her seed one who would come to give life. One who would be the life giver. And so Adam and Eve were spared in spite of their sin. Adam and Eve believed in the promise of, that God gave in the garden on the first Christmas. When Eve gave birth to the first child, we read in Genesis 4, and this is fascinating, that she called her firstborn Cain. And Cain means, here he is. So see, she was thinking the right way. But the reality was, who she was really holding in her arms was the first murderer but she was thinking the right way because she knew eventually down through that seed, the deliverer would be born. She was looking ahead to the one who should be born. And, the, and she was staking her life on the reliability of God's promise. And everyone who has trusted Jesus Christ about Christmas believes in the one who is promised. Christmas is not about trees and tinsels, and gifts. It's about a war that was set forth from the beginning in the garden. A battle set in motion in Genesis 3.15, accomplished through Jesus Christ and offered to all 
who will come. The battle has been underway since the garden. And the battle is for you and I. The gift is offered to each one of us. So remember, your trials are a gift from God. They keep enmity between you and evil. Do you see how we can embrace even the toughest things in life when we understand the purpose behind them? The great gift on that first event, that first day, that first event when God gave Genesis 3, verse 15, was the promise of a deliverer and the promise of enmity between good and evil. The promise of a battle between you and I and the unrighteous. A battle between God and Satan. And that battle has been waged ever since, and it will be raised, raged until Christ comes for us. But the important thing about Christmas is to realize that the battle is, is raged for you. God fought for your soul. And just how in the garden when Adam and Eve violated God, and yet he loved them so much to put a plan in motion to redeem them, in the same way that plan is for you and I. And it doesn't matter what you've done in life. It doesn't matter how bad you've been or how good you've been. All of us are in need of a Savior. For all of us were born in sin. All of us were born into the battle, into the fight. So the beautiful question of Christmas is, what will we do with that great battle? Will we take our stand, take Christ as our Savior and fight the battle with him? Will we stand shoulder to shoulder as a people this Christmas and put him first before all other things, making him the Lord of our life and the sustainer of everything we do? This is the beautiful picture we have. And it's fitting that we start this series on a Sunday when we have communion. Because this is the representation of the victory of the battle that was promised in Genesis 3.15. That very warfare promised in Genesis 3.15 found its ultimate victory right here. In the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we take this communion and we take the cup signifying his shed blood and the bread which signifies his broken body, we are reminding ourselves that our God loved us more than our sin. Our God loved us more than anything we could do in this world. And he says, come and take freely. Come and take of the sweet water for you. Come and take of the life that I have poured out for you. Come, take me and my payment for your sin and be free for eternity. That is the message of Genesis 3.15. And this is a reminder of that ultimate victory 2,000 years ago. And so as we prepare our hearts for communion now, I'd like you to be thinking about that first Re revelation of Christmas when right in the garden right after the sin is discovered God immediately puts into plan a wonderful grace and we call it Christmas as the men come and prepare for communion take a few moments 
and go to the Lord and let's just meditate on what he's done. And Father, I just pray that as every heart is bowed and every eye closed, and as we take these few moments, Lord, now to just turn everything over to you, to just lay everything at your feet, to be reminded of what you did for us that day in setting that plan in motion. I pray now that you would help us to be honest with ourselves, honest with our own hearts. Who owns my life? Who do I live for? I understand what the cross means. I understand what communion means. I understand that the creator of the universe gave his life for me. And I want to live for him. As we take a few moments to meditate, Lord, help us to think clearly on those thoughts.